Mark. Hello, how are you doing? I don't know how things are for you up on the mountain there in Colorado, but today down here it is horrible. It's like midsummer. <laughs> cool up here. It's a little bit, I think, a high of about 50. Wow. I really wish we had that. That's what we should have this time of year. I came home, somebody left a box of, we ordered some cat litter and it was a couple of bags. And they left it down by the front door, so I had to bring it up all these steps. I'm pouring with sweat. It's, oh, my God, it's ridiculous. This room that I'm in right now is about 80 degrees. <laughs> it's nice and cool here. So, all right, I guess if you're ready, let's get rolling. Listen to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema. Tonight, we're talking music with Mark Bridey of Jag Panzer, only here on Third Eye Cinema. Welcome to Third Eye Cinema. Tonight, join us for week 92 of Third Eye Cinema with one of the founding and longest standing members of a band whose very name has become synonymous with the term U.S. Power Metal. Releasing their first legendary EP back in 1983, Coloradans Jag Panzer have weathered many a storm, not to mention a lineup change over the decades, and yet not once did they throw in the towel until very recent days. Now back in full fighting form with their most beloved and justly celebrated lineup, they've crafted a comeback album to beat all, hearkening back to their mid-80s glory days so strongly, it's almost shocking it was only recorded this year. Join us as we navigate the tangled web of power metal history with Mark Bridey of Jag Panzer, only here on Third Eye Cinema. But first, just to give you a taste of what we're talking about, here's Jag Panzer with Fire of Our Spirit. Through our veins, no one is to blame. 
Talking Music, and we have with us a man who's been center stage and one of the founders and driving forces behind a band that's weathered many a storm, hailing all the way back to the very dawn of the 80s, a band whose very name has become synonymous with the words U.S. Power Metal. Now back in fighting form with the lineup that marked their glory days, they released what I think is one of their strongest albums in decades, or more to the point, since the last time this particular lineup recorded together. Please join me in welcoming Mark Briety, guitarist of the legendary Jag Panzer. Mark, welcome to Third Eye Cinema. Oh, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So one thing I'm a bit bemused by is that you guys, and I think also Fate's Warning's original vocalist, John Arch, are the only metal bands I can think of coming out of Colorado, and Colorado Springs in particular, because my co-host on another podcast lives out there and works the stand-up comedy circuit. So if you're aboard, you can always go say hi to Matt G. Just tell him I sent you. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I'll look for his name. But has this been an obstacle at all, being out there in Colorado Springs, particularly back in the day when just about every metal band was coming out of L.A. and thrashing death metal more or less out of San Francisco and either Buffalo or Florida? I mean, you know, we, there was a small Texas scene, too, but metal always seemed pretty confined to certain specific areas. Yeah, it, it was an obstacle, particularly back then. Yeah, you know, we could play here locally, we could play Denver, but beyond that, you know, anything else was, even to go play Kansas would have been a 10-hour drive, so... You know, to play L.A. or just any place, would have, it would have been an expense. We didn't have any money. We were a very poor band. Did that cause you any problems in terms of recording contracts, labels, anything like that? Because as far as I know, there's really nobody out there. Yeah, you know, thankfully the tape trading scene was pretty strong back then. So that kind of got our name out via people trading tapes. So we were able to get a record deal. A few times, you know, I'd have to travel out to Los Angeles for business, and that, that was inconvenient and expensive. But, you know, we, we really wanted to do this. We wanted to make records, and we wanted to play, so uh, we just made it work. But, yeah, it was definitely an impediment being in Colorado back then. Now, you and John Tetley have been at this from day one. You're like the rocks of the band. Nothing shakes you, no matter how hard the bull is kicking and bucking at you. I'll also say that Richard Sternquist has been with you steady since Dissonant Alliance, but you definitely have more than your share of turmoil otherwise. So let's start at the beginning, all the way back in 1981. This was just you, Tetley, Harry, who was just going by Tyrant in those days, and Rick Hilliard on drums. So how did you get the band off the ground right. and sign? You know, who was this tiny label, Azra Records? Well, uh, three of us, Harry, John, and I, we've known each other since uh, how we were about six years old, I think. I think I met him when I was in kindergarten, and those guys were in first grade. Harry lived up the street from me, and John lived two streets over. I met Rick when I was 12, so we all knew each other. Harry sang as long as I can remember. He was uh, you know, he was singing in choir when we were eight or nine years old, and so we always knew he had a voice. So he, he's the first one to get into a band. I think I was about 13 when he got in a band with some older guys, and it just it looked really cool. So we all decided we wanted to do it, and none of us could play really well. Um, John didn't know how to play bass, but he'd saved up some money from his – he was cooking at Denny's, and he saved up money from that, went and bought a bass. Uh, Rick Hilliard and I were playing drums in school band. Rick was playing drums in school band, and I was playing guitar in school band. So you know, we were really just a bunch of friends that thought we would learn instruments and give it a try. We quickly uh, started playing originals, and we were playing this. Uh, it was the B circuit here in Colorado. was uh, not really the bigger clubs, sort of the smaller clubs in the smaller cities here in Colorado, and uh, originals weren't allowed. So we would throw in an original, and Harry would say something like, this is the B-side of Black Sabbath Paranoid Imports. <laughs> and then after every time we did it, somebody would come up to us, I have that record. You guys did that good. <laughs> if you've seen my review of Deviant Core, which I love, by the way, you know that you guys are a fairly recent discovery for me. It predated the album release, but not by very long, which was kind of weird synchronicity. But, I mean, Jack Panzer was a name every serious metalhead had heard spoken back in the day. Maybe saw some flyers or ads in metal magazines, but only a few of us actually got to hear, much less see the albums of. So was this all down to being on a small label with limited distribution and promotion? Yeah, you know, uh, people, you know, I get a lot of email, and people like our, our first album, Ample Destruction, has sort of become a cult classic. Right. But back then... We only had a deal in the United States, and it was a very small deal. And I sent copies of the album to European record companies, some of the bigger ones, and got turned down by all of them. And then I tried to give them the record for free wow. here. have, And they turned that down as well. Jeez. So we really did not have, you know, we had an EP out, and we had ample destruction, just U.S. distribution only, tiny label. 
Yeah, because I can't recall ever seeing a copy of the EP, which later got set up with the name Tyrants, or Ample Destruction in any of the stores I visited. And some of those back when were pretty Indian metal-focused. Having been there, I'm like, wow, yeah. We're <laughs> I heard this name before, but who the hell are they? Uh, yeah, locally, I was having to go to record stores all around Colorado and introduce myself and kind of show them that we, we draw a good crowd when we play. And, you know, I had to talk them into getting the record. It wasn't easy to get our record. So uh, it's finally to get. I was able to get all the local record stores to carry it. Local radio didn't help a bit. We we had no help from any local radio. Local concert promoters were were good though to us, and they put us to work back then. We opened up for everybody that came through. So I'm guessing you went with an EP for the usual reasons, you know, lack of funding, sort of testing the waters, trying to build a fan base. So what was the story behind all those extra tracks on the recent CD release? I mean, were those recorded for an album but left off when you went with an EP? You know, where'd they come from? No, we used to do demos all the time, and uh, it's funny, that first demo we did is a song called Tower of Darkness, and it's on that EP release, and uh, everybody in the band agreed to chip in. It was going to be 20 bucks each, you know. <laughs> we, we needed 80 bucks to do a demo, and I had my 20 bucks, and the other guys didn't, so I drove them down, and they all gave blood to get their 20 bucks. <laughs> We went and recorded that, and we were hooked then. So we started doing demos all the time, just just because we like recording. It was kind of fun being in the recording studio. So that that's what those extra songs were. Um, the reason we did an EP, our label back then, we were considered pretty heavy at the time. I know it sounds crazy now because there's a million bands heavier than us, but at the time we were considered very very heavy. So there was a little reluctance from the label to invest in a full length record initially. So they asked us, hey, do you mind if we, can we just do an EP first? And we said, sure. So that uh, that's the result is the, the four-song EP that, it was just untitled to us, but people have since named it the Tyrants EP. This is Lanval from Edinburgh, and you're listening to Third Eye Cinema. Hey, Metalheads, Leva Leone here from Chastain, and as you know, we're listening to Third Eye Cinema. Enjoy. Hi, this is Gigi from Phantom Blue, and you're listening to Third Eye Cinema. Okay, okay. Hi, everybody, this is Lee Christine from Leave Size, and you're listening to Third Eye Cinema. Rock on. Okay. Hi, this is Chris Impelitary from the band Impelitary, and you are listening to Third Eye Cinema. Hey, this is James Rivera. You are listening to Third Eye Cinema. I am the king of hell. Hi, this is Udo Dokshana, the singer of UDO, and you listen to the show Third Eye Cinema. So how did you look into bringing Joy to follow aboard for Ample Destruction? Well, that's an interesting story. You know, I, I had always wanted to be a two-guitar band, and we just couldn't find anybody here in Colorado. Uh, we moved out to Los Angeles for a while after the EP came out while we were working on Ample Destruction. And uh, I thought we'd try to find another another guitar player, and I, I really wanted a better lead player than myself because I did the leads on uh, the EP, right. and I really have a lot of interest in that. So we found a guy in the local paper. It sounded great. He liked the same kind of music as us. We called him up, and we said, do you want to come audition this Sunday? And he said, yeah. Sunday comes around, and a different guy shows up. <laughs> he said, I'm Joey Tafoya. And I'm like, well, who are you? And he said, well, this guy, Russ, was supposed to be here, but he couldn't make it, and I kind of know him from the music store. So Russ asked if I would take his place on the audition. Wow. 
And, it, you know, so Joey shows up, brings in his marshal, uh, asked him his influences. He was a huge Richie Blackmore fan. So that, that was a, that piqued my interest immediately because I love Blackmore. And uh, Joey plugged in. I, I showed him Metal Melts the Ice really quickly, picked it up fast. He did some leads and we were just floored. He sounded great. And uh, he came aboard just right after that rehearsal. So I've also seen at least one other cover for this album, which is a couple of tough-looking broads staring you down at a bar, and one's got her breasts exposed. What was the story behind that? <laughs> you know, that's uh, that one's actually a bootleg. Really? <laughs> but it's not. It's not the typical bootleg. You know, I'm at home one day, and I get a call from Germany, and it's a record company said, "Well, Mark, I'd like you to do some press next week for the Ample reissue." And I said, really? Because I, I haven't signed a contract with you. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Ow. He said, oh, no, we bought the rights from this. And he named somebody on the East Coast. And I, I don't remember the guy's name. And he said, we bought the rights from him. And, and I said, well, he doesn't have the rights. I don't know who that person is. <laughs> wow. So I did the press anyway. And, you know, I, I was clear that it's a bootleg. But, I, you know, I also tried to convey that it's not the record company they're not going out bootlegging us. They got duped by a con artist. But yeah, it's a bootleg, and yeah, there's lots of different. Back then, you know, for the reissues, we always wanted them to use the original Apple cover. But there was just something in the industry back then where everybody said if you did a reissue, you had to change your cover. So we actually didn't have anything to do with any of those reissue album covers. And that was really nice of you to go ahead and do promo for them, even though you probably weren't seeing a dime off it. Yeah, we didn't say you know we didn't see anything, and the record company did pay cash up front to whoever this guy was that claimed he owned it. But it's a fascinating album in many respects. Talk about the album itself, not the bootleg. Uh, you brought over this straight up aggression of the EP with its sort of new wave of British heavy metal vibe and man of war like feel. But you married it to a surprisingly stylish and tasteful lead playing from Joey Tafola, and yet it gels. I was pretty surprised going from Tyrants to Ample Destruction. His addition to the band was more like a multiplier, and everything got ramped up by orders of magnitude. And it's not surprising so many people hail it as a cornerstone of U.S. power metal. Yeah, I think that you know my my songwriting was always rooted in in Richie Blackmore and Tony Iommi, and that didn't translate well on the EP because I didn't really, I'm not that style of lead player like those guys to sort of merge those two together. Whereas Joey could take some of my rhythm parts and add his solos. It really took the band to another dimension. Plus Joey, you know, kicked in some of his own songwriting on the record too. And I got to add my parts to his songwriting. We had a good marriage of musical styles on that album. So how much of this album was already written before he came on board, and how much of it was as a band effort, if you will? I, I think we had three songs done before Joey got on board, and I think Joey brought a couple of his completed songs on board. So I, I, if I remember right, we had about five songs, you know, between what he contributed and what Harry and I had done, and then the rest was uh, really us, you know, Joey and I worked together on some things, or, or some of the things that was all of us at rehearsal, and some of this it was uh, Harry, Joey, and I. It, it was a lot of different uh, songwriting styles back then. So you leave Azra and record Shadow Thief, which, despite serving as a proper album nowadays at the time, unbelievably was only a demo, or depending on how you look at it, a combination of two demos. So why was something that polished and good never released? Well, you know, we kept doing demos because, you know, we, we would see the band grow with every demo and we would see us get better. So we always wanted to keep doing that. And at, at that point, after Ample, it came out, we started getting offers from the bigger indies like Combat and things like that. Uh, we also had major labels would fly out to Colorado to see us. We had several of those. So, you know, we, we were naive to the business. And, you know, when you got labels like Atlantic talking to you, that's what you want to sign with. So, you know, we really held out waiting for this big deal that never came and so unfortunately that record shadow thief just didn't come out you know in retrospect we should have just set a deadline and said if we don't have a major deal by august let's take the best indie deal we can get right but nobody thinks about this when you're in your 20s no. yeah you know we were young i did the ep at 16 so you know I, yeah we were we were very young at the time so was not having label support why Joey left the band, or was it more in relation to Mike Varney's offer to give him his own instrumental shred album on the infamous Shrapnel Records label? Yeah, I think the Varney record, you know, seemed like a step up because Varney was had great distribution. Uh, he was getting a lot of press, uh, you know, and, and even guys on his label. It seemed like the step up 
even if you were looking beyond that, like Ingve, you know, Ingve joined Varney's label and played for Steeler and then went to his, his own successful career. So I think Joey looked at that as definitely a step up. And, you know, I understood that there was, there was no bad feelings with him leaving at the time for that. And, you know, Harry left for a while as well to join Riot, which also seemed like a step up. So, you know, if one of my friends has a chance to, uh, to do better in the music business, good for them. Yeah, because for years, that was as much as I knew, you know. Here's some guy that I hadn't heard of, has this really good album out, Out of the Sun, on my favorite Shredder label, but it's like, you know, who is this guy? I'm like, you can put him with, like, the Jason Becker album or Racer X, but who is this guy and where'd he come from? <laughs> so it's it's actually good to actually, after all these years, say, hey, wait, this is where he came from, and wow, this is even better to come back full circle, if you will. Yeah, Out of the Sun, that's a great record. It really yeah, is. Yeah, Joey just, he used to practice you know, all the time. So you sort of regroup, because for the next six or seven years, not only are you between labels and without your lead guitarist, because he's overdoing his own thing, but Harry was working with Riot. Yeah, you know, we were huge Riot fans. You know, Fire Down Under was one of my favorite U.S. metal albums, and a lot of my bandmates really loved it. And they had heard Harry sing, I guess, from Ample Destruction, and they contacted him and asked him if he was interested in the job. And so Harry went and joined that, and we immediately got a new singer. So the Riot gig didn't work out for harry but we already had bob parduba and we were already working on chain of command so it just it didn't didn't quite work out to get harry back at the moment so harry went and uh, joined satan's host and uh, then titan force now bob parduba you've mentioned his approach is more soft and mellow if you will I mean, it's still power metal very much so but it's not the same thing as harry so were you actively looking for a different approach on this yeah you know i had known bob from his band alloys are and they did originals and they did some priest covers and bob used to nail the judas priest song so anyways a good metal singer you know we weren't making any money and we just had the small little deal so i i don't think we were really an attractive option to any singers other than whoever is the best locally and that absolutely was bob now the same kind of situation happened as with shadow thief where you had actually recorded this album chain of command but then didn't release it so what was the story with that yeah we uh you know, we had kept doing demos and we really liked it. So we actually financed Chain of Command ourselves, thinking that we could just get a deal right away and it would just pay us back. Well, we, we did get a lot of offers. I mean, we had several offers for it, but all the labels making the offers saw that it was finished and said, well, you know, we'll just, we can't really pay you for it, but we'll release it and give you a royalty. And that's just, we weren't able to do that. I mean, we were in debt for the record. <laughs> just we couldn't do that so that's yeah another record we did that didn't come out on time (laughs) now this is where you really kind of went off the rails for a minute i gotta ask what were you thinking with this in an alliance because you know i'll be honest when i heard daniel conkers it was kind of like grunge whispers and like bellows like wow like this is like dave matthews cross with phil anselmo it doesn't feel very jack panzer so what was the thinking there? Were you trying to go for a radical right turn? No, it, it had been eight years since Apple came out. You know, there was zero interest in the band. I mean, none. I hadn't done any press for years, hadn't spoken to anybody in the industry. Uh, I just wanted to play. You know, we wanted to practice and we wanted to play. And we were, we were thinking about a name change for a while. But uh, we got Daniel in the band and we got Chris Kosk on guitar. And they, they said, you know, let's just keep Jag Panzer so we can play all these songs live here locally. Right. There was really, really no interest in a deal or anything. I mean, I, I thought our time was done. I didn't anticipate any kind of deal. But it was actually Daniel that started recording us, and he was the one that started sending out songs, and he got us the deal for that album. You know, and it was a very, very small label in Germany. And so I thought, you know, why not? We'll see how it goes. Um, you know, most Panzer fans don't like the record at all, and that's fine. But, you know, it's it's an honest record. That's how we sounded like with those two guys. You were pretty quick to pull things back together because only three years later and you have both Harry and Joey back in the band for The Fourth Judgment. So what happened there? Well, I had written some songs that I thought Harry would sound good on. And, you know, again, we didn't have a deal. Uh, There's uh, seemingly no interest in the band. So I thought it would just be fun to have Harry sing on it. He can come by. We can have some beers. He can sing on it. So that's what it was. It was... uh, John and Rickard and I just recorded the music one weekend here, and the next weekend Harry came over and ordered some pizza and got a six-pack, and he <laughs> laid down some vocals. Nice. That was it. I mean, I, I didn't think anything else. It was fun. It was good seeing Harry again. 
And uh, I sent the tape to a friend of mine in Germany, and he's the one that started sending it out. And then pretty soon I've got Censure Media calling me. And uh, they were a good label, you know, good size label, good distribution. So, you know, then I called Joey and I said, look, we've, we've got this record company interested. And do you want to do this record? And he said, yeah. You know, he was uh, he, he had been writing stuff for his plastic solo album, but he wasn't ready to do it yet. So he actually his chops were good. He'd been playing and he had some time. So he said, yeah, let's do it. So he jumped on board and we did the fourth judgment. So you've expressed some dissatisfaction with the original cover. I gather that you've done that on the computer yourself or something. But I don't know, I kind of liked it. It seemed a bit more evocative in a way than the later, more polished artwork from the remaster. But, you know, I just like indie stuff. I'm all about stumping for the little guy. Do you still feel the same way? Are you still, like, upset with the original cover? No, I mean, I don't mind the original cover for Fort Judgment. Everyone else hated it. I mean, because <laughs> I'm the one that did the cover. It was what I wanted. But, yeah, yeah I got some hate mail and people were... <laughs> <laughs> well, I had no problem telling me that all the time. That cover sucks. The cover sucks. Cover sucks. And well, I'll go on the record. I liked it better. <laughs> uh, but things are still a bit different from where we last left off because you've got some really good songs, some good solos, but there's a lot of riffs in there that feel very '90s. You know, it's not as pointedly as like this in an alliance, but there's a song like Black. You know, that would have never been on the first few albums. So was it just a case of? going with the times and you know this is where you were at that point yeah you know i i don't ever i, I don't ever write to try to to be with the times I, I mean i know things come out like that sometimes but that's never ever my focus in songwriting I, I just go for it and just write the songs just are what they are you know there was really no aim to try to go for a specific sound or follow any trends or do anything that's just uh i guess it's just the way they came out so Joey left again. So was that because he was going back to do his his third solo album, or is there some other reason? No, it, you know he's working on his solo album. He couldn't do the first tour. You know we had a tour booked right away, so we asked our friend Chris Broderick here in Colorado if he would do it. It worked out with Chris really well on that tour. Joey was busy on his solo album, so we just thought, you know, let's uh, let's bring Chris in. You know, let's move forward with him. We got along good with him. He's a Colorado guy, good lead player. So I brought him on board and uh, did several albums with him. Hi, everyone. This is Mark Bowles from Ring of Fire. You're listening to Third Eye Cinema. Hey, this is Davey Vane from Vane. I want you to get very close to your speakers right now, right up against your speakers, because you're listening to Third Eye Cinema. Hi, everybody out there. This is Michael Kiska speaking, singing for Unisonic in Plasma Dome, and you are listening to Third Eye Cinema. This is Team Jetro Souza from Hatriot, or probably every, a bunch of other million brash bands that you've heard of in the past. Anyway, you are listening to Third Eye Cinema with the G-Man, so turn it up and start a pit in your living room. <laughs> awesome. Uh, this is Tony Portaro from Whiplash, and I want to thank Gene from Third Eye Cinema for keeping Whiplash alive. Okay, this is Dan from Hex, and I want to thank Third Eye Cinema and Gene for having me on. You guys kick ass. Hi, this is Mark Brighty from Jag Panzer. You're listening to the heaviest metal on Third Eye Cinema. Perfect. You're a pro. <laughs> <laughs> but, a lot yeah. of those. I actually want to jump back for a second because we were talking about Chain of Command earlier. You had Christian Lassay, and then he later comes back for Scourge of the Light. So what was the story there? It's such a big remove. We're talking about 87 and what was that, 2011? Yeah, right when we got uh, when we got Bob Parduba, Bob was from uh, Alloy Czar, which was a local club band. Bob played the clubs a lot, a lot more so than we did. And Christian also played the clubs with his band. So both of those guys were very experienced club guys. They played a lot. Christian was a great guitar player and a cool guy, and he wanted the gig. So, um, you know, we brought him aboard. Yeah, yeah people do come back years later. <laughs> uh, yeah, with Christian, you know, he was uh, he was supporting himself as a musician. So, you know, in Chain of Command, we had some good songs. We thought we could get a good record deal, and, you know, we thought we could make things work. And so he did the record, but it's it became pretty clear quickly that, uh, you know, he wasn't going to be able to support himself being in right. Panzer. 
So he left to do a little bit more lucrative things. And here, you know, lucrative could be anything. You could you could make money playing country music here six nights a week. I mean, I mean, I don't know what he did personally, but there's a lot of ways to make money playing music. So he left for that. We got him back years later because Chris Broderick joined Megadeth, and and we big gig coming up. So we had to scramble. I mean, fast. We had six weeks. We were going to Europe, and uh, Chris was in Denver. You know, he's back in Denver at the time, and uh, he, we knew he had the chops to pick everything up to be able to do this one gig in six weeks. So we'd asked him to do it, and he did it and hung around for uh, Scourge of the Light. So for most of the period between Shadow Thief and the Deviant Chord, like you had mentioned, the six-stringer chair was built by Chris Broderick, who went on to do a few albums with Megadeth. Now, there's no question this guy's good, but you can see kind of where he was going to wind up in his playing, because he's very much a Mustaine-style player, stylistically. One thing I liked very much about his playing is he tended to multi-track his leads. You know, at times it almost turns into like a James Murphy-style chorus of leads. Frozen of Fear is a good example for that, off Mechanized Warfare. Yeah. He's got at least three guitars in there playing at intervals and harmonizing with himself. But while Chris's work wasn't a million miles removed from what you were doing before that with Joey, you definitely upped the aggression. It's like these pounding, thrashy riffs and flashy leads are taking center stage throughout. You know, it's more of like, hey, I'm here, center stage. As good as the man obviously is, it's like he doesn't have that same sort of, maybe it's more of a matter of finesse that Joey has. You know, Joey would never wind up in Megadeth, is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, it's... uh. You know, they're both they're both have insane skill on the guitar. Oh yeah. I, I think it's just a matter of their influences. Joey comes from the Blackmore school and he grew up really learning Blackmore. Whereas Chris is a little bit younger guy and Chris grew up on Paul Gilbert. And Chris's favorite band was Meshuga. Yeah. Chris that- had completely different set of influences exactly that's it because the style is very different they're both really good players but a lot different from where he's going and vice versa but even beyond what we already covered you guys had a few issues along the way because you know like we mentioned harry was in and out of the band a couple times joey and then of course when christian left later on you actually shut down the band for a couple of years you know it actually seems to go beyond just people coming in and out of the band as you know they're available so what was the story here well, you know, it, people come in and out. It just it it can get frustrating in this band because we do records that are just well received and and do well critically. And uh, you know, there's just no money. There is just really really none in this band. I know people out of the business think that making money in the music business scales. You know, they'll say, well, well if if X band is making. 500,000 a year, this huge metal band, Jag Panzer, must be making 50 or something like that. But it doesn't work that way. I mean, it just doesn't scale. So, you know, we have people, a lot of people left at times for disappointment just because things aren't working out the way they thought. And that's, you know, the band broke up a few years ago because I think everybody was tired of just no breaks, just constant no money, no no tour support. Just it was really really hard to move forward. So we called it a day, but I, that didn't end any work for me because right when we called it a day, we had the offer to reissue all the early stuff for High Rollers. So that, that was a ton of work on my end. We had the offer to have the music in the movie Dark Places. That was a ton of work. So I, I never got a break, even though the band wasn't around. I was still working Jag Panzer business every day. But, yeah, I mean, it's sad, because there's bands that are as good as you guys are, and you figure, hey, these guys should be really successful, and yet, from what I'm hearing, that's not necessarily the case. It's a rough industry. Yeah, it's very rough. So here we are 20 years on from Fourth Judgment and over 30 since Shadow Thief, and you pretty much got the old gang back together with both Harry and Joey on board. And damn if you didn't go for broke. I mean, people usually think Ample Destruction... But I'm hearing a lot of Shadow Thief all over this album, which made me really happy. Right off the bat, you know, Born of the Flame is practically making a mission statement. You know, this this ain't the Jag Panzer of the 90s. This is the old Jag Panzer. We're back. What's nicest to me is that you didn't go all the way back to Ample Destruction as your template. You know, there's elements of that. There's elements of the Fourth Judgment. But, again, it feels very Shadow Thief-like. There's power. There's shred. But there's a lot of melodicism very much intertwined, and it's a very polished end product. You know, fans of the first few albums, or even Joey's first solo album, can't help but love this. Yeah, it's weird for me because as a songwriter, you know, I, I just write. I, I don't try to say, let's sound like this or let's sound like this. I just write. And I've been impressed nearly every day for this record and, and people's impressions just vary wildly. I've had people tell me that the music sounds just like something off of Ample. And then I have other 
people I'm interviewing with tell me this sounds completely modern and sounds nothing like that. So it's just, it's so hard and I can't see it anyway. I just see it as, you know, here's these new songs we wrote and recorded. It's hard, <laughs> it's hard for me to relate it with, uh, with our past music because I, I just can't look at it that way. So there's an interesting choice on the album, though admittedly one that's very power metal. You do a traditional Irish folk song, Foggy Do. So was that Harry's choice, given he'd probably grown up with it, depending on how proud and traditional his folks are? Uh, no, that that was actually my choice. My dad sang, and uh, he that was one of the songs he sang around the house. Ah. So I've been familiar with Foggy Do since I was a kid. When I hit about 16 or 17, I started hearing an arrangement in my head for a metal version. So I've had that arrangement for ever and i've just been trying to find a place to put it you know for years when we we started talking about this album a few things came up some of my bandmates said let's try to do a lot of variety on this record you know let's mix up some time signatures let's mix up some some keys let's try to do things a little bit differently so i thought great uh, this would be a good chance to put foggy do in so i recorded my version of foggy do but i didn't tell the guys that it was a cover I just said, what do you think of this song? Because I wanted to get their impression just purely as a piece of music. And uh, they all liked it, so uh, we went forward with it. So I was actually right. I just picked the wrong Irish. <laughs> it stands out from the rest of the album, but, you know, Gravedigger, Ice Thirst, Serenity, even tons of Euro power metal and symphonic acts dig into the history books for material. So a traditional track like this still fits somehow. And, you know, like you mentioned, you don't exactly treat it acoustically. It's not like you're just covering a folk song. Yeah, I I thought we made it, you know, my intent was to make it sound like a Jag Panzer song while still maintaining the melody line of the original. I just wanted to keep the melody and that's it. I want to redo everything else. So hopefully we succeeded. I guess that's up to each listener. So Divine Intervention is another interesting one. You know, beyond the lyrical orientation, Harry multitracks his vocals more in the baritone range, which comes out sounding very much like 80s Kiss. I was fascinated by that. Yeah, Harry, Harry made it a point up front with me that, that he really wanted to do some different things vocally. Yeah, and, and lower harmonizing was one of the things he wanted to do. So, yeah, yeah, I, I agree with your assessment. That's a good assessment on that song. Yeah, it does does kind of sound like that. And Joey really lets it rip on this album, too. I mean, Fire of Our Spirit is all piss and vinegar throughout. He barely stops soloing on that one. What were you doing? Were you, like, holding a lighter under his ass? <laughs> I've been wanting to do a song like that for years. I'm a big UFO fan from since I was a kid, and that song, Pack It Up and Go, Michael Schenker just rips leads all the way through it, and I yeah. loved it. And I always wanted to do a song like that, and it's it's difficult getting a lead guitar player to do that. You know, they just, uh, most of them just, I would figure they would want to play a lead through the whole song, but <laughs> never had anybody want to do that until this album when Joey said, okay, uh, for one song, yeah, let's do it. Wow. And my favorite moment on here is actually on Long Awaited Kiss, where he goes for a straight-up boogie band blues rock solo, but with a little bit of shred peeking through. And I don't think that's something a lot of the younger players really get, that there's more to playing than just hitting a lot of notes at high speed, as great as that can be. You know, you got to have some soul and feeling first. You know, even if you never become a shredder, that can be enough right there. Yeah, and that's what we were going for, just on that track, some kind of... I know kind of the feeling that I used to get when I'd hear Dwayne Allman play, you know, or, or just a lot of the Southern rock bands would just go for that just cool feel, Ricky Medlock, or, and, and that song obviously didn't sound anything like Southern rock, but I, I think Joey gets a real expressive feel on his melody lines in that song. Yeah, and I should just mention off the cuff that I was very impressed by Harry's performance on this album. I'm like, wow. You know, considering that you guys and, and myself, actually, we're all kind of getting up there. I mean, to hear music this confidently performed, especially when you got something like The Voice, which is a little bit more uh, subject to the vagaries of time, if you will. You know, to hear somebody performing like that is like really, it, it made me feel good. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, Harry's, uh, Harry's knew how to sing, uh, you know, forever. We, we grew up in a very poor neighborhood it's it's actually the poorest neighborhood in the whole state but for some reason we always had a good choir teacher at every school and harry took advantage of that i mean like you wouldn't believe he would go in early to school for choir training he'd stay after school he'd go in on breaks and he really really dedicated time in how to preserve his voice and how to sing properly so he's really, really skilled at that, at taking care of his voice. He's very skilled at harmonizing. Uh, he's just, uh, yeah, he, he just knows how to do it. He's just very good at singing. 
So what plans do you have for Jack Panzer now? Are you working on any major tours in the U.S. or Europe? And will Joey be joining you, or is this another, uh, okay, I'm off, guys, see ya? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're fielding tour offers right now. We've actually got a lot coming in. It's uh, We've got to find one that's, that's doable, and I'll give you an example. We had a tour offer for next spring. It sounded great. It was a lot of dates in Europe, and it would have been really cool. Uh, the amount per show seemed great. Everything seemed doable until they said we have to chip in for the tour bus, we have to chip in for the road crew, we have to chip in for the tour manager, and it ended up being eleven dollars a gig we would make, and we just oh. we can't go out on the road and make two dollars and twenty cents a show. <laughs> uh, back in the day, you know, your record company would kick in you know some money towards that to make it happen because you know they they would figure album sales would go up and and they could compensate for that uh, those, those days are long gone we don't have any record company support for touring so you know we could have done it if we drove a van around which we are more than happy to do We're, we are experts at getting expenses down you know unfortunately this was with a bigger band and they were booking the tour bus so it was really no choice we would have had to you know, do the shows for $11 a show, and, and we just can't do that. We'll find something, though. We, we have a lot of offers coming in. So do you have anything you'd like to plug, or do you want to point listeners to your website or your Facebook page? Yeah, you know, I would point listeners to our Facebook page because it's manned by the band members. Uh-huh. So, you know, you can go there and ask us directly a question, you know, Mark, what kind of guitar do you use, or what do you use to record vocals, or any, I mean, any kind of question. You'll get an answer there from a band member, so... So what kind of guitar do you use? I have an ESP uh, LTD-1000. I actually have a whole bunch of guitars, but that's my main live guitar, and I used it a lot on the record. I also use my Les Paul on the record, and I use my Telecaster on the record. Okay, so you're all around. You're you're a renaissance man. (laughs) You got the Tele, you you got the Les. I grew up as a huge Jimmy Page fan, and that's the one thing I noted is, you know, on those early Zeppelin records, he was using all kinds of guitars. He plays Les Paul, or then his Dan Electro, and then his Tele. So I've always done that on Jack Panzer Records. There's always lots of guitars on my parts. Well, with that, Mark, I'd like to thank you again for joining us here on Third Eye Cinema, and you know I'd love to have you back to talk your next album. You know, just uh, try to keep everyone on board this time, considering how many people rotate in and out of Jack Panzer. (laughs) Yeah, well, I got my fingers crossed for that. And to close out our interview with Mark, here's another one from Jack Panzer. This is Divine Intervention.
Thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our up close and personal interview with Mark Friday. Stay tuned to our website, Twitter, and Facebook page for news about future podcasts. If you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or if you're a filmmaker or musician who'd like to join us on air, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Third Eye Cinema. Catch us on Twitter at Third Eye Cinema. Or check out our website, thirdeyecinema.wordpress.com. If you missed any part of this or any other Third Eye Cinema broadcast, just visit our WordPress site for links to the shows in question. All Block Talk Radio shows are available for archive listen and download at your Pacific. Join us for weird scenes inside the gold mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself. Discuss the beloved, the comedian, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in. Turn on. And take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurd and look at the headlines from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. 
This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio.